welcome I've received here this morning. I'm very grateful to be here with you. And sorry that Grace isn't, but um, it sounds like they're having quite, quite a time. I hadn't heard any of that uh, about their trip. I recognize a few faces and yet realize that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Strangely enough, this is the church where my husband Daryl was brought for his first eight years. And uh, as he wandered around in the cemetery this morning, he found his great-grandfather's stone, gravestone. So (laughs) that feels like some sort of a connection um, to this place. So here we are on Palm Sunday again, which means next Sunday is Easter again. I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older, but it feels like the days and the months and the years are just rolling much, much faster. But I'm very grateful for this yearly rhythm of remembering the events of this week, because the journey of being transformed into the image of Christ is lifelong. And I consider the events of Passion Week to be central to how we understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Sometimes in our churches, we just make the leap from this Palm Sunday Hosanna singing to the Easter story and the resurrection. And if that's the leap that we make from one celebration to the next, then we get kind of a skewed uh, rendition of who Jesus really was and what was going on as he started this trek into Jerusalem. Now, it's important to remember that Jerusalem was the power center of the world then, politically and theologically, which can be a very dangerous combination. What happens is that the politically and the theologically powerful use God to back up their own desires and their own control systems. Jesus came preaching a very alternative gospel to that notion, to that notion that the rich and the powerful ones are also the most godly ones, and that God always blesses kings and rulers, even if they oppress the poor and reward the rich. Jesus knew that challenging this ruling system of his day was not going to turn out very well, and indeed it didn't. Until, of course, God stepped in and raised him up in the end because he had been obedient to this way of love, proclaiming the ultimate victory of life over death, love over violence. So we begin to get clues about all of this by how Luke starts the Palm Sunday story. The whole Palm uh, Palm Sunday story from Luke 19 begins begins this way in verse 28, and we just heard it. After he, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So we have to ask, well, what is this? What had Jesus just said? Because it seems for Luke, the one who wrote this gospel, it, it must be important to the story. Well, it was a parable that Jesus had just told them. And then Luke 
Luke introduces that parable in verse 11 with yet another reference to what happened before that. Verse 11, as they were listening to this, Jesus told this parable. So what happened just before the parable? Well, it was Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus, that short tax collector who climbed up in the tree to see Jesus. That's the very beginning of chapter 19. So I'm going to read parts of chapter 19 and just listen for, for how these stories connect with each other, leading up to the Palm Sunday story, which we just heard. So I'm going to start reading in verse 8, which is right at the end of the Zacchaeus story. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. And then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. And for the Son of Man came for the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable, because it says he was near Jerusalem, and because they, the people that were listening to him, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said to them. Here's the parable. A nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. And he summoned ten of his slaves, and he gave them ten pounds, and he said to them, Do business with these until I come back. But the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to rule over us. When he returned, having received royal power, when the king returned, having received royal power, he ordered these slaves to whom he had given the money to be summoned so that he might find out what they had gained by trading. Well, the first one came forward and said, Lord, your pound has made ten more pounds. And the king said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been trustworthy in a small thing. Take charge of ten cities. And the second one came, saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. And he said to him, And you rule over five cities. And then the other came, saying, Lord, here is your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth, for I was afraid of you, because you are a harsh man. You, you take what you do not deposit. And you reap what you do not sow. And the king said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, did you, that I was a harsh man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then when I returned, I could have at least collected some interest. And he said to the bystanders standing around, Take the pound from this man and give it to the one who has ten pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he already has ten pounds. And the king said, I tell you, to all who have, more will be given. And from all those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who, want, who didn't want me to be king over them, 
Bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. And after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So, after this amazing pronouncement of salvation on Zacchaeus, Jesus tells them this parable about a very wicked king. And then he leads them into Jerusalem in the procession that we heard about. Now, this parable is quite hard to understand. But it's important to notice that Luke says Jesus told the parable because, verse 11, they were near Jerusalem. And because the people supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus knew that the people were expecting him to overthrow those in power in Jerusalem when he got to Jerusalem and to establish finally the peaceful kingdom again, just like they had under King David. They didn't realize how different this king, Jesus, operated. So Luke, the one who wrote the gospel, having the advantage of hindsight, connects the dots and sees how these stories and events are connected. He sees Jesus trying to help his disciples understand what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And he sees Jesus trying to help the disciples understand the kingdom of God, which is not like a political or a geographical kingdom that in this world that they were accustomed to. That's why Luke says that Jesus told this parable. Now, a common teaching on this parable is that it means that, the studio, that studious trading and good work ethic that generates more money, or at least a savings account that accrues interest, is what it means to be Christian. And what Jesus wants of his kingdom people. But it's pretty hard to make all the pieces of the parable fit that interpretation. And what is so obvious in the parable is how wicked this king is. And if we make out the king to be God, we end up with a God who acts like the wicked kings of Jesus' day, which the people knew about all too well. Perhaps that's the very thing that Jesus is afraid of and why he tried to warn the disciples just before they made their way up to Jerusalem that the kingdom of God was nothing like the kings they knew. Maybe that's what Jesus was telling them with this disturbing parable. Actually, our brothers and sisters in Central and South America understand this parable differently than we have often been taught because they know about living under wicked kings. Their interpretation is that those listening to Jesus knew that the king in his parable, was indeed a wicked worldly king named Archelaus. And that Jesus was telling them that the last servant is actually the hero of Jesus' story because he refused to play the king's game. And the game was taking what you did not deposit and reaping what you did not sow. That pitiful servant we have so often judged as a lazy entrepreneur is Jesus' hero. 
he told the truth about the wicked king. He refused to participate in the wicked king's ways. And he got him in big trouble. So with these two stories right before Jesus entered Jerusalem, he has turned the tables on their understanding upside down. Even before he got to the temple and turned the tables upside down, which happens too in this week. First of all, he affirmed a sinner, one of those tax collectors who stole from people. He affirmed a sinner, Zacchaeus, because he had repented and said he would pay back four times anything that he had robbed. And he then condemned a wicked, supposedly God-fearing king who was ruthless and mean, killing anyone who did not bow down to him. It seems as if Jesus was trying to warn the disciples that all is not well for the followers of the Jesus way, like the last servant. Followers of Jesus will find themselves at odds with the ways of the world. That is the hard and the real part of Jesus' experience in Jerusalem. And it must be reckoned with in order to get the resurrection. In order to understand the significance and feel the need for resurrection. So now to the story for today. The tension had been building. Jesus had been preaching and healing in the villages around Jerusalem. It's estimated that about 200,000 pilgrims traveled, mostly walking, from the outlying areas around Jerusalem into the city to celebrate Passover. They did this every year. And Luke tells us that Jesus had warned his disciples three times about what was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem. But it doesn't seem that many of them connected the dots or realized the gravity of what was going to happen during this Passover week. It's true, Jesus was very different from the other Jewish leaders. He had healed so many of the common people, sometimes on the Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath laws. He walked among the peasants. He even considered sinners, even those who were considered sinners. And, and he wasn't worried about being made unclean by touching lepers and women. He valued them, ate with them listened to them, called them to be disciples. And on that spring day in the year 30, at Passover time, this motley group of peasant folks made up a procession that traveled from Galilee, which is about 100 miles to the north of Jerusalem, and they entered the city from the east. I would guess that most of them just thought they were walking together in celebration to the Passover festivals. They weren't aware that they were putting themselves in danger by being with this Jesus. You see, this group wasn't the only procession approaching Jerusalem. From the opposite side of the city, from the west, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Edumia, Judea, and Samaria, led ranks of imperial cavalry and soldiers, another procession coming in from the other side of town. Pilate's military procession was a demonstration of both Roman imperial power and Roman imperial theology, which means that Rome considered their rule to be of God and even their emperors to be sons of God. And the mission of the troops entering the city with Pilate 
was to reinforce the Roman troops who were permanently stationed in Jerusalem to make sure that there was no disruption to anything in the city or the temple when all these people came to town, all these other kind of people came to town for Passover. So imagine the contrast of these two processions. Pilate's group no doubt looked like imperial power. Soldiers on horses, soldiers on foot, leather, armor, helmets, weapons, banners, shiny metal and gold. Imagine the sounds, the marching of heavy boots, creaking of letters, snort, snorting of horses, clinking of bridles, beating of drums, swirling of dust, shouting orders. And entering from the east came the procession we heard about this morning. Peasants, children, large groups of folks walking, throwing their cloaks down on the road for this unbridled young colt carrying a grown man whose legs, no doubt, were dangling against the ground kind of silly. People were running into the fields to gather leafy branches to lay down in honor of this man who was saving them, healing them, teaching them, loving them. They cried out, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. They had been waiting for the day when the kingdom of David would come again. A kingdom where all have what they need, where there's no privileged few who rule over and terrorize the many. That's what they expected would happen when they got to Jerusalem. Hosanna in the highest. I imagine singing and laughing and clapping just as we did here this morning. The contrast between these two processions is stark. And these two ways illustrate the choice that is before us as disciples of Jesus and before the servants in the parable. Which procession are we in? Whom will we serve? Whose team are we on? The wicked king or Jesus, the servant God? Now you're right, considering Jesus' crucifixion, which we know is coming, neither one feels like a good choice. We easily say we don't want any parts of the power mongers or the violent rulers or the wicked kings that take what is not theirs. We don't want any parts of those who kill and steal and run over whoever gets in their way. But if we're honest, we also feel resistance within us of joining the one who appears to be such a loser. Like that last servant who couldn't even figure out how to play the game. We too feel the resistance within us to signing up with the one who gives up and goes without fighting back. The one who empties himself rather than emptying those who did him wrong. Which he could have done, of course, because he was God. The early Christian communities had a hymn that they sang to help them stay this upside-down course. It's found in Philippians 2, 5 to 13. And in the message, it's paraphrased like this. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity 
and took on the status of a slave and he became human. And having become human, he stayed human the whole way through to the end. And what little he had was taken away, it seems. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life, and then he died a selfless, obedient death, and the worst kind of death of that, a crucifixion. But because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever, so that all created human beings, all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long dead and buried will bow down in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the Lord of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. That's why I entitled this sermon, When Losing is Winning, or When Down is Up, would be another way to say it. And Jesus said a lot of stuff like that. He said, the first shall be last. And the last shall be first. This is the gem of the gospel. And we so easily explain it away or ignore it whenever we can because it's just too hard. Who wants to lose? Who wants to go down? We want to be able to march into Jerusalem behind Jesus, the triumphant one. Most people I know don't want to be on a team that has the upper Most people I know want to be on the team that has the upper hand, the winning team. And we want to be there at the tomb when it's discovered that Jesus is not dead but alive. But we sure don't want to go lay down our lives the way he did. We sure don't want to challenge the empire's rules which will surely lead to being persecuted and made fun of like Jesus was. We know how hard it is to choose love rather than hate, or to choose tolerance rather than intolerance. Henry Nouwen writes, we will never come to know our true Christian vocation in life unless we are willing to grapple with the radical claim that the gospel places on us. We have to go down. We have to deny our privileges. We have, to we have to die to ourselves before we will be raised up by God. And Jesus showed us the way of doing that in the events of this week coming up. There's no easy way to follow Christ. Because Jesus' way was not easy from the very beginning. As Henry Nouwen writes more, he moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness. And look for these signs this week as you hear the Monday, Thursday, Good Friday scriptures again. He moved from success to failure, from strength to weakness. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth was a life in which all upward mobility was resisted. You know, some people, they wanted to make him king. They wanted him to show power. And we do too. 
We want him to fix all the things that are wrong in the world. His disciples wanted to share in his influence, too, and sit on thrones with him. And so do we. But Jesus consistently said no, no, to all these desires. And he pointed to the downward way. The Son of Man has to suffer, he told his disciples. And then he looked him in the eye and he said, do you drink this cup? Jesus leaves little doubt that the way he lived is the way that he offers to his followers. He said things like this, anyone who wants to be great among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow in my footsteps is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. That is the most amazing and ironic thing in the world. Many spiritual teachers are finding and teaching that learning to let go, to let go like Jesus did, is the greatest source of happiness and freedom. We so easily and quickly take things in their own hands, and then we pray that God will help us carry out those plans. Instead, it may be that God is asking us to let go of our need to control the outcome, the thing that we hope will happen. Just open our hands and let go of needing to control that. Maybe God is asking us to let, let go of our expectations and our dreams. Maybe God is asking us to let go of what we know is right. Just to let go of all of it, like Jesus did. Because then we get ourselves out of the way and God can work. God can begin to work. Evidence of the resurrection is always all around us. And you know this. You know this. You've had this experience in your life. There is strength in our weakness. If we can let go and admit that we feel weak. There is freedom in our captivities. If we can let go of feeling entitled to not having problems. There is joy in our pain if we can let go and not deny that we There is wealth in our poverty if we can let go and trust that God will take care of us. There is honor in our shame if we can let go and humble ourselves before God and those around us. Jesus is our guide for all of this dying. So may we follow him and stick close to him as he walks obediently into the trauma of this next week. So that when he is raised up, we too feel it inside, knowing 
that it is only by the grace of God that we live with freedom and happiness. So blessings to all of you on your journey of dying and being raised to new life again and again and again. Learning to live and love